I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Matthew chapters 5 and 6 and Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 36. These passages deal with what's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. In today's passage, we're going to see the following in Jesus' ministry. This sermon introducing the kingdom of heaven, commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. It was preached between the second and third Passover feast of Jesus' ministry, and Jesus is likely somewhere in Galilee during this period of time. Now, a considerable introduction needs to be given here. Let me tell you what you must know before you read this passage. This is all about the kingdom message. Many people misunderstand aspects of this sermon by Jesus because they don't place it in the proper context. Now, the context is vital here. First of all, Jesus came as the Messiah to establish the kingdom on earth prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. Of course, it had been prophesied by Daniel and Isaiah that the Jews would reject this initial offer. But nonetheless, the offer had to be made to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. If the Jews had accepted Jesus as their Messiah at that time, then the Davidic throne would have been restored at the first advent of Jesus, the Messiah. That brings us to the second major contextual consideration for this passage, and that's the religious leadership. The priestly families were the Sadducees. Now, they denied two major scriptural doctrines, and those two doctrines were the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body. Well, that doesn't leave much. What makes that even more ironic is the fact that they controlled the priesthood, claimed to be the descendants of David's high priest, Zadok. Then there were the Pharisees. They believed in the supernatural, all right, and they believed in all of the Old Testament. Now, their problem was that they had become an elite class of picky, picky religionists. Over the years, they had handed down extra-scriptural traditions which they orally appended to the Law of Moses, having given these oral traditions and laws the same weight as the written Mosaic Law. And what's more, they flaunted their law-keeping practices in the face of everyone else. In their eyes, nobody was as righteous as they were. If they were, well, then they'd be Pharisees too, in their thinking. Of course, then there were the Herodians, but we don't find much written about them. They were more like the Sadducees, but their zeal for the ruling family of the Herods, that was their distinction. So, meet your religious leaders. Here they are, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and on occasion, the Herodians. They were corrupt before God. That's why John the Baptist addressed them as a brood of vipers in Matthew 3.7 and Luke 3.7, and that's why Christ said in John 8:44, "You are of your father the devil." As a matter of fact, Jesus mentions the Pharisees in this discourse in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20 when he says this, 
For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Yet, these people controlled Jewish thought and practice in the day when Jesus ministered. They'd taken the law-keeping and made it a standard of righteousness. The real standard of righteousness is acquired through a personal relationship with God, always was and always will be. Genesis 15.6 says of Abraham, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now listen closely. Spiritual righteousness has never been attained by keeping the law. Not ever, not even once. But the Pharisees had manipulated it to make it appear that way. For all effective purposes, the Pharisees and Sadducees had established a false religion. So what was the kingdom on earth to look like? Well, let's take a look at what is known as the New Covenant, found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. I read those four verses. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now, what about the Messiah who was prophesied in the Old Testament? Well, let's look at Jeremiah chapter 23, 5. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper, and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. More about the Messiah, that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, a very clear description of the Messiah. Verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now based upon these Old Testament prophecies, what will the kingdom of God slash kingdom of heaven, what will it look like? Well, here's what we know. According to Jeremiah 23, 5, it'll be headed up by the Messiah, the descendant of David and ruler over the whole earth. According to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, the Messiah will control the worldwide government and also the Messiah will be God manifested bodily on the earth. According to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, the law of God will be ingrained inwardly within people rather than compliance to a written law. This is, in fact, the way believers today are controlled by the Holy Spirit. And secondly, from Jeremiah 31, everyone we see there will be saved. So let's recap the circumstances in Israel when Jesus began ministering. Jesus is the Messiah. 
the religious system over the Jews was, in fact, corrupt. This corrupt influence over the Jewish masses caused them to reject Jesus as Messiah. The Old Testament prophecies detailing the Messiah's suffering, well, they were at hand. However, the Jews were offered the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. They could have accepted it, but they rejected it instead. So this sermon, known as the Sermon on the Mount, it characterizes the difference between vain religion and true righteousness. The Sadducees and Pharisees practiced vain religion. But they also controlled the religious practice of the Jewish masses. This sermon highlights their hypocrisy and their inconsistencies. This sermon lists the qualities of true righteousness, kingdom-appropriate righteousness. This kingdom offered is the kingdom on earth prophesied by the Old Testament prophets with the characteristics that we talked about a few moments ago. So we began with what are commonly known as the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12, paralleled by Luke chapter 6 verses 20 through 26. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, Luke parallels it in Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 17. For he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him, and he healed them all. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil, for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets." Well, first of all, let's establish that both of these accounts record the same occasion of Jesus' preaching. At first notice, the Matthew designation, he went up on a mountain, that would seem to be different from Luke's account where it says he stood on a level place. 
Actually, the Greek phrase in Luke's account specifically records a Greek tapas, a place, with the adjective modifier of pedanos, which means level to the feet. In other words, while on the mountain, Jesus chose a spot level enough for the people to stand and listen. Both Matthew and Luke are giving an account of the same sermon given by Jesus. People today commonly refer to the blessed verses contained in these chapters as the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude means supreme blessedness. Notice that Luke's list is considerably scaled down as compared to Matthew's list. Many people think way too hard when they read these Beatitudes. Think of these as kingdom equivalents to the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Together, they form a view of the characteristics of those people who are kingdom-appropriate. Don't use these as standalone action and result items. In other words, being meek by itself, well, that doesn't result in inheriting the earth. You know that, I know that, as in entering the Davidic kingdom. However, people with a heart relationship with God, they are led by God to exhibit the characteristics found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 10, and Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. Consider this. Luke's abbreviated account of this message, as compared to Matthew, validates the fact that one should understand that these verses address general attitudes about godliness rather than specifics. This is not a to-do list. As I said, some people sometimes think way too hard on these so-called Beatitudes. Now notice something. These attributes of kingdom-appropriate people fly in the face of the lifestyles of the Sadducees and Pharisees. As a matter of fact, these leaders were all about doing. They would have scoffed the very idea that God is more pleased with the attitudes reflected in verses 2 through 10 rather than their doings. I am certain that this passage was written as a stark contrast between fake righteousness and true righteousness. Now, true righteousness is a heart relationship with God, not a compliance checklist as had been practiced by their contemporary Jewish leaders. In other words, in this passage, let us observe all the things that the Sadducees and Pharisees are not. However, when a believer is led by the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians 5, and 23, well, that's manifested in his life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Those things are a product of a life directed by the Holy Spirit, and they capture the qualities of what we know here as the Beatitudes. Jesus takes a subtle shot at the hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership in verses 11 and 12. Persecution is inevitable, just like the persecution experienced by the Old Testament prophets. Now here's a question for you. Who persecuted those Old Testament prophets? Well, here's the answer. The answer is the Jewish leadership. And who were Jesus' persecutors and critics? Well, you guessed it. The Jewish leadership. Now we see in verses 13 through 18 that example living is important. Verse 13, Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. This audience is told that true believers do strive to be examples. They are the light of the world. Moreover, they add the missing component of salt to the world. Literally, the light of the Messianic kingdom and the flavor, salt, will be manifested through those who have an honest and sincere relationship with God. That would be in contrast to the Pharisees who simply comply with the law of Moses. Then Jesus explains the role of the Mosaic law. His declaration in verses 17 and 18, well, that brings into view the new covenant that we talked about from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. That new covenant cannot take force until the requirements of the law are fulfilled. This passage is a prophecy of Christ's necessary death on the cross to fulfill the sacrificial requirements of the law. Now, many people remove verses 17 and 18 out of their context, and they promote a doctrine that erroneously requires Gentile believers to keep the Mosaic law as a condition of continued salvation in Jesus Christ. Let me just say that's wrong, 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 wrong. Look closely at what Jesus is saying here. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law, till all is fulfilled. Now here's an important concept, but let me emphasize it by asking a question first. Did Jesus fulfill the law when he died on the cross? Well, if your answer is no, then tell me what Paul meant when he said in Colossians 2.14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, here's the irony for those who think the law of Moses is necessary in one's life to continually find favor with God. Virtually none of those people actually keep the Old Testament law. Now, I've written an article under the topic section of BibleTrack.org on the Sabbath day. Do Christians really need to keep the Sabbath day? It's an interesting article, and I'd encourage you, if you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org, click there and go read it. And what you'll find is that the people who think that they're somehow obligated to keep the law of Moses, they don't even bother with keeping the Sabbath day as it's presented in the Old Testament. Here's exactly what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. It's the death of Jesus on the cross fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament law. And that, by the way, is exactly what Paul is emphasizing in Colossians 2.14. A correct perspective on the believer's relationship to the law of Moses, well, that's just vital. I mean vital for a complete understanding of the kingdom message that's preached by Christ all through his earthly ministry. Then we have a sobering declaration from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, 
shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the composition of the attendees are, oh, they're your common everyday Jews. There is no record of even a sprinkling here of Pharisees, yet they do get dishonorable mention here in verse 20 with regard to the practice of the Mosaic law. Jesus says that they're falling short. If there were any present, verse 20 had to simply just inflame Pharisees listening to this message. He said again, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What? They were supposedly the most religious people living. But not so. The Pharisees and scribes were corrupt. Well, if these picky, picky Pharisees are falling short, then what chance does anyone else have of finding favor before God? Now, you absolutely must understand the terms, the meaning of kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, it's in order to be able to grasp the meaning of these two verses, or even the whole sermon for that matter. These terms are formal identifiers of the Messianic kingdom on earth, the one that was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. These terms, by the way, do not, you'll get so confused if you don't understand what I'm about to say right now, these terms do not describe heaven above. So, when that kingdom is established, who are the people who will be residing there? Well, those residents are to be made up of those who have an authentic heart relationship with God according to the new covenant that we looked at in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And it's not going to be those who simply appear legally compliant with the law of Moses. It's in that context that the Pharisees get mentioned in this passage. If this concept of the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven is confusing to you, then you'll want to go back to the top and listen all over again to my introduction regarding the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven because they have specific meanings. In our next section, verses 21 through 37 of Matthew chapter 5, we ask and answer this question. Are these hypocritical Pharisees really keeping the law? Verse 21 you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Well, these comments, by the way, introduced in verses 19 and 20, they're intended to serve as an indictment against the legalism of the Pharisees. These Pharisees practiced actions while ignoring the condition of the heart. To them, it was just all about doing. These verses accentuate the sinful conditions of their hearts, and it shows that while they appear to keep the law in reality, they fall miserably short in heart and attitude. He lists these examples. Read this passage, and you'll see that the Pharisees were, in actuality, way guilty of violating the spirit of the law. The examples that Jesus lists in verses 21 to 37 are designed to emphasize the failure of the Pharisees to actually keep the law in verse 20. Keep in mind, the Pharisees were all about outward compliance. To them, righteousness was compliance and had nothing whatsoever to do with attitude. Jesus emphasizes that outward compliance falls short as a standard for righteousness because of the wicked motivations of one's heart and one's mind. It's ironic that Jesus means to use these verses to expose the hypocrisy of the falling away short Pharisees. But many misdirected believers today use these verses to add a new layer to the Mosaic law for their fellow believers to keep. Now here's the bottom line on verses 21 to 37 here. And the bottom line is found in Romans 3.23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus means to expose the wickedness of the human heart and thus emphasize the need for authentic righteousness. When we pick through the list of sins found in these verses, identify and promote abstinence from them as an enhancement to personal righteousness, well, I'm afraid we missed the point that Jesus was making here to these hypocritical Pharisees about the nature of sin. Now, with that explanation in mind, let's look at those concepts of sin that are dealt with by Jesus here. In verses 21 to 25, he says, Anger with another without cause is akin to murder. In verses 27 to 30, he says, To have sexual thoughts about a woman who's not one's wife is akin to adultery. Then in verses 31 and 32, he says, The common pharisaical practice of divorce and remarriage, well, that's akin to adultery. If you'd like additional insight on that, then look at my notes on Matthew 19 and Mark 10. 
And then Jesus, in verses 33 to 37, addresses their abuses of the concept of Old Testament oaths. You wonder about the sacredness of oaths, then look at Leviticus chapter 27, my notes there. Jesus seems to be listing common abuses of the law of Moses by the Pharisees themselves in these verses. And, by the way, their shortcomings. In other words, they were all about doing, these Pharisees, and they were all about the appearance of compliance, but with corrupt hearts before God. Then Jesus deals with the treatment of one's enemies in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48, and Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36. Matthew five thirty-eight. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now over to Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also, and from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Now here's another interesting characteristic of the Sadducees and Pharisees. They were all about vengeance. Jesus introduces this section with a reference to the Old Testament laws regarding punishment for bodily harm when he says in verse 38, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He, of course, is making reference to Exodus chapter 21, verse 24, also in Leviticus 24.20 and Deuteronomy 19.21. These Sadducees and Pharisees practiced vengeance to an extreme. Long-suffering, that wasn't even in their vocabulary. They were all about getting even. They overlooked the compassion components in the law of Moses, but jumped onto the punitive measures. 
Jesus mentions a few examples of the compassion found throughout the law of Moses here in verses 39 to 42. The Sadducees and Pharisees continually sought to murder Jesus. It wasn't just Jesus. They seemed to take joy in persecuting those who, in their opinion, fell short in keeping their rendition of the law. Notice verse 43, where he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, the first part of that is based upon Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. Well, of course, there's nothing in the law of Moses, nor in rabbinical literature, that endorses hating one's enemies. I suppose the Sadducees and Pharisees had inserted that as a part of their oral tradition. However, there's no question that these Jewish leaders had a hatred toward what they considered Roman oppression. And what do you call the attitude that resulted in the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, here's the reality. They felt completely justified in hating that which did not forward their cause. What's more, they had a disdain for the little people, so to speak, those people who did not practice their brand of Judaism to the same extent as they did. As you read through the Gospel accounts, they record the confrontations with Jesus by these Pharisees. You'll see Jesus pointing out their enormous hypocrisy. Their love for others outside their own circle of influential Jewish leaders was virtually non-existent. Jesus introduces a new concept not found in the law of Moses, per se, in verse 44 when he says this, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus is, as was stated previously, introducing true spirituality to a group of people who had only been beaten over the head with the doing and the vengeance. So, in the next chapter, chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, Jesus talks about prayer and fasting. Verse 1, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret, will reward you openly. Well, it's obvious that everything Jesus has taught up to this point flies in the face of the practice of these Sadducees and Pharisees, but he's not done, not by a long shot. These hypocrites do their charitable deeds only when it enhances their reputation. They want to be seen and praised for their actions. Notice verse 2, it says, They do it that they may have glory from men. And then there's the issue of public prayer. Who are those guys that periodically during the day stop what they're doing and begin chanting repetitive phrases out loud in the presence of everyone? Why, they're Pharisees. That's one of their badges of honor. That's their way of elevating themselves above the rest of the Jewish populace. That's their way of saying, we're holier than any of you. Now, Jesus says, here's the deal on prayer. Real prayer is done in private, and it isn't comprised of a series of recitations. Real prayer is communication from our hearts to God's. Jesus insists here, don't recite phrases as a substitute for prayer. Now, here's the ironic part. Jesus gives an example of a prayer with meaningful components in verses 9 through 13. He's demonstrating prayer that's from the heart and meaningful, not one of reciting memorized phrases. And so then what do people do today with this model prayer? Well, they memorize it and recite it. It's known as the Lord's Prayer. They recite it as a substitute for real, heartfelt prayer. Admit it. That is ironic, isn't it? Incidentally, the prayer we pray in public before a meal, well, that's for the purpose of identifying ourselves with Christ as our Savior, not for the purpose of lording ourselves over others as the Pharisees did. It's a heart thing, you see. By the way, Jesus also proposes this prayer model much later in Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. Now, there's a carefully chosen term in verse 7. That term is heathen. That's from the Greek word ethnikos. That word usually refers to pagan Gentiles. It's interesting, though, that Jesus refers to prayer in the synagogues in verse 5 as he refers to the practice of the Pharisees. It would appear that Jesus intends that these hypocritical Pharisees be likened to heathen Gentiles when they do their repetitious prayers. Now, what about forgiveness in verses 14 and 15? We'll see as we read through the Gospels that the Pharisees, they weren't known as big-time forgivers. Forgiveness of the weaknesses of others would only serve to diminish the importance in their minds of their extreme pursuit for righteous-looking reputations. And how about fasting in verses 16 through 18? In the Old Testament, the Jews only fasted on the Day of Atonement. We see that in Leviticus 16, 23, and Numbers chapter 29. Later on, when they returned from Babylonian exile, four other annual fasts were observed by the Jews. We see that in Zechariah 7 and Zechariah 8. But we see from Luke chapter 18, verse 12, that some of the Pharisees fasted twice a week. We don't know why. But here we get a sense that they did it for the recognition in verses 16 through 18. Jesus tells them to fast if they want to. 
However, if they're looking for their fast to hold any weight before God, they'd better stop doing it for men's praise and start doing it as a personal matter between them and God. Now, if you'd like a complete overview of fasting, I've put all the verses together in the Bible in the uh, commentary on Isaiah chapter 58. And then finally, we see that our rewards should be in heaven in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. Verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Verses 19 to 34 here drive home a spiritual concept foreign to the Sadducees and Pharisees. It's not about show, it's about pleasing God. They were all show. In that process of show, their treasures were being laid up on earth rather than heaven. In verses 22 and 23, it's the eye that provides the light for one's body. Blind eyes provide one with only darkness. Obviously, the metaphor here refers to spiritual light as opposed to spiritual darkness or authentic righteousness compared to fabricated righteousness, just like the corrupt religious leaders practiced. You must choose one or the other, verse 24. Is your master to be the praise of others or the praise of God? Jesus encourages his audience to demonstrate a true relationship with God, one that ignores haughty appearances and lays up instead treasures in heaven, verses 19 to 21, and also in verse 33. Now this message, by the way, flies in the face of pharisaical practice. In the remaining verses here, Jesus encourages a life of dependence on God. The point is this. We don't really have control over the events of our lives anyway. Only God does. Therefore, being in sync with God is the key to a life of righteousness and joy. And the rest? Well, it's covered in verse 33. 
but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. In other words, when one's first priority is pleasing God, all the right stuff follows. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walker.